Hey everyone, this is Will from Charlotte, North Carolina, and welcome to this brand new and important episode of The Missing Piece. It's only over a month, and right now, the reality is teaching us that one of the important lessons that we are learning today is when you are dealing with a war criminal, and that is a very dangerous game. I don't know if you are familiar with an, a movie a couple years ago, and it was entitled The Hunger Game. Right now, in the reality that we're living in today, especially for the people in Ukraine, it is actually The Hunger Game in real life. People in both countries are devastating, and people in both countries are starving, and they're begging for the war to stop. And we know that war should not or will never be the solution to any political conflicts. And meanwhile, across the continent, countries such as China and Germany and Switzerland, any other countries that were watching this ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine are paying a lot more attention, especially from this economic standpoint, and also the countries in the Middle East. So with everything said, how is the war making sense and creating negative or positive influence for some of the countries, not all of them? So that's why today, in order to answer the questions in detail and analyze the answers in a more precise way, and it's my great honor to invite Dr. Muhammad Farrow. And Dr. Muhammad Farrow is a research fellow at GIGA, the German Institute of Global and Area Studies. He is also a research associate at Clintondale Netherlands Institute of International Relations. From 2016 to 2021, he was an assistant professor of international relations at Leiden University in Netherlands. And his research interests include global geoeconomics, infrastructure security, and China-Middle East relations, Iranian foreign affairs. So without further ado, Dr. Farrell, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Hello, thanks a lot for inviting me, and uh, let's uh, discuss the issue. Uh, so uh, which uh, particular aspect of this war uh, would you like to discuss first? Well, Dr. Farrell, again, as I mentioned in the intro, right now we are stepping into over a month when we are talking about this ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, at the beginning, the whole world believed that Vladimir Putin was bluffing. There was no war, and he was only using this threatening political rhetoric towards the people, perhaps not only in Ukraine, but also in America. But right now, we are living in this reality, as I mentioned before, this is a hunger game for the people in Ukraine right now. So from your perspective, why do you think that Vladimir Putin has not taken back any steps and instead he's still plowing forward? What kind of goals and purposes from your perspective that he's trying to accomplish? Oh, first of all, I should uh, uh, start with uh, saying uh, that my sympathies go to the uh, Ukrainian people and mm -hmm. we all hope that uh, their plight will end as soon as possible in as peaceful a manner as possible. Mm. Uh, the uh, reasons for why uh, uh, Vladimir Putin decided to invade uh, Ukraine uh, are multiple and uh, numerous, so it's uh, kind of impossible to go through all of them right now. Uh, if you look at uh, the narrative that the Kremlin is pushing forward, uh, one particular reason uh, that they say uh, caused the war uh, was uh, the NATO expansion. Mm. Of course, uh, that's the Russian side of the story. On the other hand, we have a sovereign nation whose sovereignty uh, Russia does not recognize. That is Ukraine. And uh, in a world of sovereign nations, uh, such nations should be able to decide for themselves what uh, what blocks, what economic blocks, what uh, 
uh, military blocks, uh, mm. they should be able to join. So what Russia is doing, despite all their uh, rhetoric about uh, respecting sovereignty and non-interventionism, which is also a Chinese, uh, which is also a strong part of, uh, or an essential part of uh, Chinese foreign policy philosophy too, Despite all of that, uh, Russia invaded, and nowadays we can see uh, every day the plight of uh, the Ukrainian people, the starvation, the uh, massacres here and there, the random uh, hitting or shelling of civilian infrastructures mm. and civilians themselves. So, yeah, again, uh, the only thing we can hope at the moment is basically take peaceful action and also hope that the plight of the Ukrainian people will end as soon as possible. Mm. Dr. Farrell, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, and of course that, you know, initially when I sought you out because you wrote one of the amazing and it was a very insightful article that, you know, entitled, What Will Russia's Invasion of Ukraine Mean for China's Belt and Road? You know, so that really brought us to the second question, because if I'm not mistaken, two weeks ago or maybe a week ago, the leader from U.S. and China, and they met virtually for the second time. But this time, the, the, the issue regarding Russia and regarding Vladimir Putin absolutely centered on the entire conversation. And U.S., needless to say, was so afraid that China either will, uh, will be openly or uh, uh, will be secretively sending military weapons or any other resources to support Russia and in the midst of the whole chaos. But meanwhile, that, you know, China has always been the center for the U.S., you know, regardless political or social ec economic shift. So, Dr. Farrell, from your perspective... How do you think that this ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine could actually impact China, especially that according to your article that you mentioned for China's Belt and Road Initiative? Because we know that this is such a significant a signature for the current Chinese leader. So what do you say to that? Uh, yeah, so uh, the war uh, will have uh, several uh, major uh, ramifications for China, but let's focus only on the BRI part, uh, the, uh, or the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, that's the full name. So uh, when I say BRI from now on, I mean the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm. Some people call it the New Silk Road or the Chinese right. New Silk Road. So right. BRI stands for that in the rest of this conversation so that your listeners know. Uh, so BRI, or China's BRI, uh, will uh, be profoundly uh, impacted and reconfigured uh, by this war. And although this is a primarily geopolitical event, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it will have major ramifications and implications for global geoeconomics, obviously uh, the most important geoeconomic initiative at this moment in the world is the BRI, China's mm -hmm. BRI. It involves more than 140 countries, so it's truly a global, a global phenomenon. Uh, in that article, uh, I discussed two dimensions uh, or two categories of implications. One is the short-term category mm -hmm. of implications or short-term implications. So short-term implications include, for instance, uh, the lack of access that the BRI uh, will have to uh, R Russian landmass, Russian, uh, Russian uh, transport infrastructure, also Belarusian transport infrastructure and geography. And because of the destruction of the Ukrainian geography, uh, China will have to skirt around uh, uh, the Ukrainian geography as well. Poland, in a sense, uh, is also uh, in trouble, not, not because of anything it did, but because of the situation, because Poland is basically, uh, when you look at uh, the geography of Poland in relation to China, Poland is basically surrounded by Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. So that means also Poland is not going to be <clears throat> benefiting greatly, at least in the short term, from uh, road and uh, railway connectivity mm. to China. So 
a lot of these countries, including Ukraine itself, uh, which last year uh, wrote, uh, signed uh, an agreement with China, uh, hoping to become a golden gateway for Chinese products and trains to go through Ukraine, to go to the west of Europe. Uh, so those dreams are basically shattered to pieces, at least for the foreseeable future, because of the sanctions against Russia, sanctions, uh, Western sanctions against Russia, mm. against Belarus, and also because of the destruction of uh, the Ukrainian infrastructure. That's one uh, short-term implication. The other uh, implication, uh, also short-term, is that the uh, geography of 17 plus one, so first I'll introduce 17 plus one. Uh, the one stands for China, of course, and the 17 stands for 17 uh, Central and Eastern European countries, mm -hmm. including Ukraine and Poland and Belarus, uh, that uh, signed this uh, kind of agreement uh, to call themselves 17 plus one, which in practice is a cooperation platform between China and these 17 countries in Eastern and Central Europe. Because again, again because of the sanctions, uh, the geography of the sanctions and the destruction of the Ukrainian infrastructure and the war zone that we have at the moment, sadly, in Ukraine, uh, one could plausibly argue that uh, uh, the short-term to mid-term fate of the 17 plus one is not going to be a healthy one mm -hmm. as well. So that's going to suffer a number of setbacks. It was already suffering setbacks because of the tense relations between the U.S. and China, the mm -hmm. so-called uh, decoupling that the two are experiencing. That's right. Uh, but now uh, with this war in Eastern Europe, 17 plus one is going to be in more of a trouble uh, than just the Sino-American decoupling. Uh, another implication for the short term to mid term, uh, or let's call it the solution to these problems for China is when it comes to the uh, land access to Europe, uh, a short term solution is to basically rely more uh, on the traditional uh, maritime connectivity mm. routes to Europe. So these maritime routes have proved to be uh, much more reliable and resilient than the vulnerable uh, roads and railway uh, connectivity that China has been uh, promoting for the BRI. So going uh, through the maritime routes once more proves to be a, a reliable option for China. It is also worth noting that uh, still 80, more than 80% of global commerce is conducted by our maritime routes. Mm. But China was hoping to uh, increase the percentage of uh, basically commodity transport via land routes because China has the upper hand in terms of railway construction and train construction uh, and they wanted to uh, basically create more connectivity via land to uh, the Afro-Eurasian supercontinent. So those dreams are a little bit uh, set back at the moment and more uh, connectivity via maritime routes are an immediately viable option for China. To go back to the land routes, uh, in the medium term, you can say that China will have to, if that's assuming Russia will stay sanctioned, then uh, the Chinese trains have to uh, go through perhaps a little bit in the Russian landmass, but then via Russia it cannot go to Europe. So Chinese trains have to go to uh, Central Asia, to Iran, Turkey, and via Iran and Turkey to um, Europe. So uh, to both. Uh, Eastern Europe and Western Europe, and of course Central Europe. So that means that uh, the other corridors, the land corridors that China has been constructing uh, uh, to varying degrees, will gain growing salience uh, in this situation. Uh, as I said, the uh, corridor China, Central Asia, West Asia uh, will be uh, much more important uh, in terms of land access between or land connectivity between China and Europe. 
therefore, the role of Iran and Turkey will become much more significant than what they already are. So these actors can use uh, this historic opportunity, for them a historic opportunity, of course, to basically become a land bridge between China and Europe. Mm. Uh, another land option, uh, it's multimodal, so both land and maritime, is uh, for China to uh, increase its connectivity to uh, uh, Pakistan and via Pakistan, again to Iran and Turkey, and to the rest of the Middle East, but also via Iran and Turkey to uh, Europe. So that's another uh, option in the medium to long term for China, assuming Russia stays sanctioned mm. and, and they cannot use the Russian geography because they point, the whole point about the Russian geography uh, is that it was such a reliable uh, just one huge country, the right. same railway network, right. no customs, no barriers, no administrative barriers. It could go from China to the uh, Eastern European geography immediately and via uh, Russia, Poland, uh, then reach Germany, which mm. is uh, the most attractive destination for Chinese companies. So those are gone for the moment. And then we have uh, the options that I talked about. Uh, another issue that I discussed in the uh, article is basically the long-term consequences of these events for the West in relation to China. So one thing that will happen is for Russia to absorb the shock of the sanctions, and it's already happening, not, it's not that it will happen, it's already happening to right. some extent is that uh, Russia will have to increasingly rely on uh, China to absorb the shock of the sanctions. Uh, they, some of the shocks are really catastrophic for uh, Russia, including people cannot use their visa cards or master cards. So right. we can see that the union pay of uh, China enters the Russian market and is in the business of replacing uh, Visa and uh, uh, Mastercard. That's one. <clears throat> uh, that's one uh, potential long-term advantage for China in this situation. The same can be said about the uh, Russian energy resources. Uh, with the Western sanctions, uh, Russia has to give this energy to countries that are still willing to buy it, such as China or India, at a very discounted price. So that's another big advantage for. Uh, China in the long run. So basically the article discusses short-term headaches and long-term advantages for China. Another major advantage, something that usually gets ignored, I argue in the article, uh, something that usually gets ignored in Western policy-making circles is the, the, is the difference between economics and geoeconomics. Mm. Economics basically uh, is about uh, sanctions, trade, finances, MasterCard, Visa cards, mm -hmm. and, so, uh, and so forth. But geoeconomics is about economics, so all of that, plus geography. Mm. So uh, the Russian geography is such that it is the largest country on the planet, and it is such that it cannot be as easily sanctioned. So Russian geoeconomics cannot be as easily sanctioned as it is possible to sanction its economics, which means it's banks and so forth. So China has the population, has the economy, Russia has the geography, the Arctic, the natural resources and so forth. So all of the geographic uh, potentials or most of the geographic potentials and economic potentials of Russia can be absorbed in Chinese uh, economic uh, power and the BRI's geographic uh, vastness. Mm. So both uh, the Chinese uh, economy and the BRI uh, geography can be further strengthened in the long term if the West doesn't do anything about it, of course. And one option for the West that I uh, argue, and this is the final part of me describing the article, uh, the final uh, the option uh, in the final part of the article, which I uh, promote, the policy option is for the West or and its allies such as Japan, uh, uh, 
uh, and other countries uh, like South Korea potentially mm. is to uh, energize their own geoeconomic initiatives such as the European Global Gateway, the uh, uh, American-led uh, Back Better World, or the Blue Dot Network, which is also uh, the US-led initiative, uh, US mm. plus uh, Australia and others. And are uh, also the Japanese initiative, which is called Quality Infrastructure Investment. So these four uh, initiatives have not really been energetic and momentous uh, in this world. BRI has been by far the most successful and the most talked about uh, geoeconomic initiative uh, in the world. Like I said, uh, encompassing or touching upon and involving uh, more than uh, 140 mm. countries. These uh, initiatives, these uh, Western or Western allied initiatives uh, have not basically produced that kind of momentum. So right. one policy option for the West is to promote those, energize those and create synergy between them so that they uh, function as one whole, the one synergetic whole in response, uh, in a policy response to uh, the BRI. You know, Dr. Farrell, again, I, I really appreciate that, how you dive into this article. I mean, again, that's the reason why, or that was the first reason that motivated me to to understand and to connect with you and to understand how this war actually is influencing China, you know, along with the BRI projects. But let's talk about something more relevant. And again, this week... Or should I say, recently, the foreign minister, Wang Yi, started a journey. And he's actually touring a lot more countries in the Middle East, including the Afghanistan, you know, uh, Pakistan. And he's going to attend more conference or seminars with other higher officials. But meanwhile, Dr. Farrell, you know that China recently also wrapped up this uh, Winter Olympics. But the funny thing is, before this Winter Olympic took place, Vladimir Putin was actually invited to attend the ceremony, and he did. He showed up, and but prior to attending this opening ceremony, he had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with, along with other officials, with the Chinese leader. But as soon as the whole Winter Olympic was over, the war started, you know, between Russia and Ukraine. U.S. and any other countries have uh, uh, actively replaced the sanctions on Russia one after another. But, you know, uh, Dr. Farrow, I got to give the credit to uh, Vladimir Putin is this person. It doesn't matter how many sanctions that can be replaced or what was replaced upon the country. But Vladimir Putin did not back out. So my next question to you is, from today, foreign minister in China is touring the countries in the Middle East. Personal relationship between Chinese leader and Vladimir Putin. What do we make of this two relationship at this moment? Some people say it's pure diplomatic. Other people believe, no, it's personal. It's more strategic. You're the expert for international security. You're the expert for international relations. Dr. Farrell, I want you to help us understand what is indeed the relationship between the two leaders. Is it diplomatic? Is it personal? Or it is more than any of that? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of uh, all of the above. Uh, and like uh, any other complex issue in the world, this is... Uh, a very complex uh, relationship and uh, like all complex uh, or complicated relationships i'm afraid i have to give a very complicated answer so there's no uh, uh, basically quick answer to this question historically uh, during the cold war uh, in the beginning uh, russia and china had some uh, friendly ideological relationship and then they fell uh, the relationship fell apart, uh, and uh, in the context of the Putin-Xi Jinping relationship, you can see that uh, in the last 10-20 uh, years, uh, the relationship between uh, China and Russia uh, has increasingly uh, got friendlier mm. uh, and more proximate. 
But this is not all about love between these two countries, because if you ask most of the Russian population, and even a huge segment, uh, so not only a huge segment of the Russian population, but also a huge segment of the Russian elites, political elites, they would identify more with uh, their European heritage than with their Asian heritage. So if things were natural, so to speak, uh, they would prefer to be connected to the West, to Europe. And historically, Russia has uh, been part of Western families, of, uh, the Western royal families, basically, that uh, uh, ran Europe, managed Europe, the different empires. So they had a lot of connections. Uh, historically, Russians were influenced and also influenced, so the two-sided relationship influenced and got influenced by other European empires, uh, such as the German empires, French empires. Speaking French, speaking German was a very prestigious thing to do mm. in a Russian court. Uh, so culturally, historically, although they see themselves a little bit apart from Western Europe, but still they see themselves as European. And in one sense, in the uh, narrative that uh, Russians uh, have for themselves about the current situation, they are, in fact, uh, saving Europe from its own decadence. Mm. That's what they say. So not only do they see uh, themselves as European, they are actually in their own uh, mentality, as crazy as you might call it, they are actually saving Europe from uh, decadence. Uh, one uh, definition of decadence for them would be too uh, much liberals than LGBTQ uh, rights mm. and so forth. So from the Russian elite standpoint and the conservative standpoint in uh, Russia, that would constitute decadence. So the point of this uh, historical uh, trajectory that I took is that the relationship between uh, China and Russia is not exactly what you might call natural mm. uh, like, there's nothing natural uh, in uh, international relationship but international relationships but this is even less natural than uh, what they actually feel which is european uh, connections that's the historical cultural side and then you have the personal uh, dimension of the relationship you could argue, and people have argued this uh, before, that uh, China and Russia are basically uh, coming together as in a negative sense, in the sense that both of them have been uh, having the problematic relations with the West. So uh, basically the logic is the enemy uh, of my enemy is my friend. Mm. So that's one part of the uh, logic. Another dimension of this relationship is that these countries have managed to uh, settle their, their differences, such as their border uh, disputes. Uh, China had to make a lot of sacrifices. That's uh, right. Made more sacrifices than Russia did in settling those disputes. And China, for instance, has not been willing to make the same amount of sacrifice when it comes to border disputes with India, for instance for different historical reasons, which I will not get into. But so uh, the relationship has been very pragmatic. It's also informed by uh, the animosity or the tensions uh, with the West. Uh, in the uh, lead up to the war, uh, during the uh, Olympics visits, when Putin uh, visited Xi Jinping, uh, uh, they also uh, produced a joint statement celebrating a new era, they called it, a new era for their relationship, which mm. they argued in that joint statement and in the speeches that they gave. This relationship, they said, goes beyond any alliance mm. and so forth. So a lot of exaggeration right. went into that. <clears throat> and uh, this joint statement was uh, uh, interpreted by many, uh, and I think uh, that's a good interpretation. It was interpreted by many as uh, China introducing itself as a global superpower, together with Russia mm. as its original lesser partner, but China introducing uh, itself as a global superpower. And one piece of evidence for this argument is that for the first time in written record in such statements, China 
inserted itself in European security architecture and commented strongly on uh, the European security uh, structure when they, in the joint statement, when they uh, said that they are opposed to NATO's expansion in Europe. So China used to be very uh, cautious about commenting on European security affairs and NATO security dynamics and so forth. But this time they actually inserted themselves in this European business, mm. which means that from one stand, it was a unique move. It was a new move. It was, uh, as Kevin Rod called it, a quantum leap, uh, one could say, in Chinese mm. foreign policy. Because they used to be very cautious when it came to Euro Europeans, because in their tensions with the U.S., they are very, uh, they, are, they usually try to be very, very diplomatic mm. and uh, nice as much as uh, humanly possible with the Europeans. But this time they even inserted themselves in that European business, which we can see unfold in front of our eyes these days. So uh, the relationship is complex. It cannot be summarized in one nice, uh, catchy, punchy sentence. Mm. Dr. Farrell, I want to read something that, again, this is something that you wrote from this article. You wrote, and I quote, The grand policy paradox in the current crisis is this. On the one hand, Western powers consider China and to be geopolitically their main systematic rivals. On the other hand, they are completely detaching Russia from Western economies, finance, geography, thereby forcing it to be incorporated into Chinese geoeconomics. You know, it's so interesting that, Dr. Farrell, on one side, U.S. I, I, I want to be careful right here. U.S. is rather anxious about this economic growth in China. But the other, other hand, U.S realizes that in order to curb the negative spread or the evil spread of Russia, you have to depend on China to take necessary actions. So in other words, U.S. is caught in the middle. I mean, I guess the American government doesn't want to become buddy buddies with the, uh, China. But meanwhile, U.S. cannot afford to lose this partner or potentially still what we call a partner in Asia. So my next question to you is, again, going back to the foreign minister, um, he's making this trip. How do you think that U.S. today is balancing this trilateral relations among U.S., Russia, and China? And do you think that if America decides to take any bold actions towards China, you know, in terms of other territorial disputes, and we can get to that, it will be a separate topic. China is more likely to completely cut off the relationship with the U.S. diplomatically and then begin to one day actually begin to, to, be, to be the superpower of the world. Do you think that is going to become a reality one day? For China to be completely uh, cut off or decoupled mm. from the U.S., not likely in the foreseeable future. But to go back to your question about uh, the trilateral uh, relationship that uh, the U.S. has to navigate, it's actually more complex than that. So it's at least quadrilateral <clears throat> uh, in the sense that on the one hand, you have Russia, the most uh, immediate uh, problematic actor that has invaded Ukraine. Right. So that's one part. Uh, then you have China, uh, with which you, as the US, uh, with which you have a lot of tensions, uh, with which you are trying to have some sort of new Cold War or some sort of decoupling uh, going on between the two. So that's another part that's already three actors. But then you have also Iran, uh, mm. with which the U.S. has to deal with in the context of the Iran nuclear deal uh, or the JCPOA. So if you uh, put yourself in uh, the shoes of American policymakers, there's no ideal option here. First of all, they should be uh, very cautious not to start intense situations or kinetic situations in any of these uh, regions, because with two of them, China and Russia, it will escalate immediately 
one could argue, into a nuclear confrontation, which will be destructive for all of humanity. Right. And with Iran, it will uh, lead to a regional conflagration. So the U.S. policymakers, the Biden team, basically the Biden administration, uh, has to navigate these tensions while staying strong in confronting the Russian aggression, uh, they have to uh, be uh, also diplomatically nice with uh, China, but at the same time, uh, China is their main systemic rival for uh, a lot of realists uh, in the U.S. Uh, this whole Russian business is basically a distraction uh, from their main uh, systemic rival, which is China. So in that sense, some of them are, like Mersheimer, is actually not happy that uh, the U.S. has to be involved in European business mm. at all. Uh, for him and other, uh, a bunch of other realists, so the main target or the main opponent is China here. And then you have Iran. And of course, then you have uh, <clears throat> the problem of how to navigate a relationship uh, with China, I mean, between the U.S. and China, in a world in which you have made or you have introduced China as your main systemic opponent or threat for some people, even enemy. So uh, it's kind of uh, like uh, it's partly your own uh, doing for having introduced uh, so publicly and so openly uh, China as your main rival. And now uh, you need China as the most influential actor uh, when it comes to Russia. Mm. Because if uh, China decides to really uh, twist uh, uh, Russia into a submission or into ceasefire or into some sort of stability, they can. Almost no one else can at the moment. And of course, China is not going to be heavily influenced by uh, these American goals. Because uh, one of the uh, spokespeople of uh, the Chinese foreign ministry said, you expect us to basically push our friend aside so that you can focus on us, mm. on China. So that's the logic from, if you look at the whole uh, business of the Russian invasion from a Chinese official perspective, a Chinese governmental perspective, from their perspective, it doesn't make sense sense to uh, push Russia around too much because then uh, what's the next target or the next opponent from the West is China. Russia for the West is basically a distraction at the moment because in the large scheme of things, it's China that Western policymakers view as the main systemic rival. And going back to the uh, trips uh, <clears throat> conducted by Wang Yi that you mentioned a couple of times, Yes, uh, basically he has been very active these days in uh, having a diplomatic tour, not only in the Middle East, uh, but also in Afghanistan, which is part of the broader Middle East, right. but, also, but also in uh, India, and if I'm not mistaken, in Nepal, he also... That's uh, right. Uh, yeah, so he uh, has been having like uh, a very intensive period of diplomacy, uh, trying to... Uh, navigate the tense situation. Like this situation is not ideal for anyone, uh, least of all, of course, obviously for Ukrainians, but it's not ideal even for Putin. He has basically, uh, I hope, regretted his move so far. He's not going to back down, but uh, no one um, really knows what's going on in his mind. But hopefully he has kind of regretted it. <laughs> uh, for China, it's not ideal uh, for uh, the U.S. is not ideal, for Europeans, of course, it's not ideal because it's the first uh, war since the Second World War, the first major war uh, after the uh, Yugoslav War, of course. So not uh, a lot of such wars happening on European soils. The soil, sorry. Uh, so that's happening. This is not ideal. In the meantime, uh, to focus on China, uh, the the U.S. and uh, you could say the West has kind of forgotten about the Middle East. So China has mm. been slowly and steadily replacing uh, uh, Western powers, especially the U.S. in the Middle East. Uh, China is right now the number one uh, or number two economic partner of 
almost all uh, Middle Eastern mm. countries, which means geoeconomically, the Middle East is looking eastward, particularly towards China. They signed a 25-year roadmap with uh, Iran. They have uplifted their strategic uh, relationship to comprehensive strategic relationship with a bunch of countries or just a normal partnership has been uplifted to the level of a strategic partnership with a bunch of uh, countries or regional actors such as GCC. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, one could argue plausibly and reliably and safely that uh, the Middle East is now, uh, that China is now the number one actor, uh, the most dominant actor in the Middle East. At the moment, not geopolitically, not militarily, but in terms of geoeconomics. Right. Dr. Farrell, I know you're very busy. I got two more major topics to discuss with you. I know you're such an expert on Iranian foreign affairs. And let's talk about, and again, this is one of the critical countries that not only for China, but also especially for the American government. Back in the days when President Obama was in the White House and he signed and he proved one of the major uh, uh, strategic partnership with the country of Iran. It's, again, what we talk about today. It's called the Iran deal. You know, so again, the whole purpose that Obama, he signed into the deal was trying to provide this transformational or this diplomatic, peaceful dialogue with the country of Iran. Fast forward, when Donald Trump was the president, and as soon as he was in the White House, he completely repealed this deal. So in other words, he believed, or um, I mean, again, I can't remember exact phrase that he used, but Trump called it the human worst diplomatic mistakes that ever made for the U.S. So in other words, U.S. should now sign any deal with the country of Iran since there's no deal or there should never be a deal with the country in first place. Right now, Joe Biden standing at the crossroads in terms of dealing with Iran or any other countries in the Middle East right now. So, Dr. Farrell, from your perspective, why is it so difficult for the U.S. government to deal with Iran at this moment? And is it is it a mistake that U.S. was not supposed to bring this democratic system or democracy concept to the place? Or, uh, or Iran and U.S. should also decouple with each other in order to live peacefully. So in other words, what is the difficulties for the U.S. to understand or for U.S. to deal with this country? Meanwhile, China and Iran are having this fruitful and productive dialogues, partnerships in all the possibilities. What would you say to that? Uh, yeah, so, uh, of course, one of the, I mean, again, just like the Russian story with the uh, the relationship uh, between Iran and the U.S. You can go back uh, uh, decades in history, but I will not do that because of uh, time uh, mm. factors. So let's uh, just focus on the role of the Middle East in the American geopolitical thinking. Uh, you mentioned democracy and democracy promotion. Uh, that was George W. Bush and his agenda basically to... Uh, be in the Middle East physically, to be physically present in the Middle East to promote democracy, to convert countries to do regime change and convert them into uh, democracies, which uh, failed really, really miserably uh, from an American perspective, also from a human perspective in terms of uh, hundreds of thousands of people getting killed, for instance, in Iraq, and uh, th uh, tens of thousands uh, in Afghanistan. And neither became the flourishing democracy that uh, George W. Bush and his team promised. So Obama coming into power, coming into office in 2008, noticed the utility uh, of these uh, geopolitical enterprises and also the human cost and the military cost and the financial cost. So the two wars uh, in the Middle East cost America approximately around four up to five trillion dollars. Mm. And then nothing came out of it. In the meantime, China, so we always go back to China. In the meantime, China was rising. Asia was, East Asia was rising. Generally, Asia was rising, but particularly East Asia, particularly China in East Asia. So Obama noticing that smartly, 
from an American interest perspective, Obama decided to embark upon what he called the pivot to Asia in 2011. It was Obama and Hillary Clinton's uh, State uh, Department that came up with the idea. It was a smart idea uh, to disentangle. Uh, when you say pivot, it means that you are redirecting your efforts from one side to another side. Mm. The one side that was supposed to now become distant was the Middle East and also to some extent Europe. Because because Obama rightly believed and argued that the future is going to be in the Pacific region. The future is going to be in East Asia, in the Pacific region. And uh, in uh, <clears throat> 2009, if I'm not mistaken, in his uh, visit to Japan, uh, meeting uh, the Japanese uh, Prime Minister of the time, Mitoyama, uh, he uh, said that he wanted to be uh, the first... Uh, or he wanted to be America's first Pacific president because mm. American presidents were basically European presidents. That's right. I mean, president focused on Europe. So that was uh, the focus on uh, East Asia and on China started with Obama's pivot to Asia. That meant that a bunch of Middle Eastern countries got really scared because uh, a bunch of those countries, including GCC countries, Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, they were living under the security umbrella of the U.S. Mm. So Obama wanted to sign this deal with uh, Iran so that uh, they could basically wrap up the whole business in the Middle East and go focus on East Asia, China, on the Pacific region. So uh, signing uh, JCPOA was part of that logic that, hey, we don't want to uh, have another war. <clears throat> we don't want to have another war in this region. We want to sign this nuclear deal. You're not allowed to have a nuclear weapon, but have your civilian nuclear mm. uh, industry, and that's it. Trump came, and of course, you know, Trump uh, not uh, recognizing any nuances that I was talking about that Obama saw in basically taking a distance from the Middle East and focusing on China, uh, and the deal apart, to renect on the American commitments to the deal, and what Biden Biden has been doing is basically trying to do damage control, and uh, the Biden <clears throat> foreign policy can be called uh, Obama 2.0, basically mm. continuing on the Obama legacy of focusing on uh, China, uh, Biden, and before in Trump, uh, turning the Pacific idea into the Indo-Pacific idea, so bringing India on board as well. So the main, I, the main strategic goal for Biden is still to do to continue basically what Obama embarked upon. And part of the logic, again, is for America to have a deal with Iran so that all the tensions are kind of settled so that they can focus again on China. So that's the large uh, picture story of the Iran deal and the American interest in having it, which Obama and Biden recognized, but not Trump. Mm. Dr. Farrell, I want to end our conversation. I know right now you're based in Hamburg, Germany, and I, I, I want to end our conversation with one more question. We know that this year that Germany just elected a brand new chancellor. And, you know, again, back in the days when we talk about uh, um, Angela Merkel, that was such a, a renowned or well, uh, a well well welcomed you know you know english is such a difficult language but you know it's a it's a it's a figure that chinese leader embraced for years and also that she actually made the trip to china and then met up with the chinese leader many times so in other words this sino german germany relationship was so positive but very quickly, Dr. Farrell, from your perspective, so far we have not heard anything or perhaps anything good uh, regarding this new strategy from the new German uh, uh, administration, you know, under the new leader. From your perspective, how will the new leader approach China differently? And if so, in what ways? Uh, yeah, so that's a very uh, difficult question uh, because we're living in a very fluid situation when it comes to uh, the Russian aggression in Europe. Before the uh, Russian war uh, started, uh, Olaf Scholz, the new uh, chancellor, had a phone call with Xi Jinping and he 
practically, uh, for all intents and purposes, suggested that he's going to have the same type of relationship with China that Merkel had. So mm. basically, same old, same old. But that was before the tectonic shifts in the German political uh, system and the right. political role that Germany has adopted for itself uh, for the first time since the end of the Second World War in the aftermath of the Russian aggression on European soil. So we, the simple answer to your question is we don't know uh, mm. because we don't know how this war will unfold. We don't know how China and the U.S. will react to this war and will react to each other in the context of this war. And then uh, Olaf Scholz has to basically decide on... Uh, how to approach China based on developments which at the moment we are unaware of. One thing remains certain, both uh, the US and uh, uh, Europe uh, <clears throat> are deeply economically uh, entangled with China. So a complete decoupling, which was one of your previous questions, a complete radical decoupling in the short term and medium term with China is impossible to imagine at the moment because that would mean a complete uh, economic collapse in the world. So everyone will lose. And usually uh, when in a scenario where everyone will lose, people try to avoid that scenario. China is not like Russia. It cannot completely decouple with China, nor can China decouple completely with the West, with Europe, with the US. So whatever happens, some sort of uh, economic relations, some sort of deep economic interlinkage with China will happen. But like I said, a lot will depend on how this war will unfold, unfold and how China will react to it and how Europeans and Americans will react to Chinese reactions to this war. So a lot of moving pieces, uh, which yeah, makes it impossible uh, to answer the question definitively. And, you know, I think that would be the honest answer as much as we appreciate from your doctor uh, on Farrell. Again, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure of speaking to Dr. Muhammad Farrell, and he is a research fellow at GIGA, and that stands for the German Institute of Global and Area Studies, and his research interests, including global geoeconomics, infrastructure security, such as the Belt and Road Initiative, and China-Middle East relations, Iranian foreign affairs. Again, Dr. Farrell, it's been a pleasure of speaking to you, and thank you so much for helping helping us to understand how this ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine creating or uh, uh, the chaos or creating this complete disorder within the international community. And let's stay in touch. And we love to have you back on the show again. Give us more in-depth analysis regarding the anything going on within this international community. Thank you, Dr. Farrell. It's been a pleasure of having you.